God, thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for the love that sought us out, uh, that set us free. I pray that we would just uh, celebrate that this morning, God, that you would um, teach us from your word. You would show us more of you this morning. I pray that you just empower Michael and that you would open our eyes, open our ears to see you and hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And you may be seated. While you were doing so, if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 58. Be there mainly in a few other places as well. Sweet. I needed another little intro. Um, we have been talking about the local church. And one of the statements that I said two weeks ago is that uh, as the image of God, we were created in the image of God to represent Him on this planet. And we do that as individuals, but we also do that as a local church. Uh, and very specifically, two weeks ago, we talked about the idea of unity. And so here's the main idea from, from that. Um, unity in the local church is based on the gospel, unity in the local church based on the gospel, not based on socioeconomic factors or not based on the color of skin or not based on who I really like and who I have things in common with. But unity in the gospel based, unity in the local church based on the gospel is a sign for non-believers of who we think our God is. The converse of that is, is also true. Disunity in the local church is also a sign to non-believers of who we really believe God is. And that's often couched in selfishness versus selflessness. Disunity, almost always, occasionally it's on important doctrinal issues, but usually... Disunity in the church is based on selfishness. I don't like the way things are going. I would like something different. You annoy me. I annoy you. Right? So my selfishness bubbles to the front. And what that is is a picture of the world of who we think God is. Is He selfish or is He selfless? Is he one that says, um, your needs and wants aren't very important? Or, or is he the model, especially the Trinity, the model of sacrificial service? That the Son, being fully God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of man, taking the form of a servant, and he humbled himself to obedience even to the point of death, Paul writes. Is that the model of our unity? That, that I'm willing to give of myself for you? Or, is, or do I picture a God that is capricious and if he's easily annoyed, then he's going to end a relationship? Or is he long-suffering? Is he a God of covenant that he loves us? And we answer that, we answer the question of what our God is like based on how we as a local church display unity or display disunity. It's a sign for the world of what we think our God is like. 
And so that was kind of the, the first foundation of, of what a local church should be, is in the midst of diversity, in the midst of great diversity, we should be unified. Then last week, we, we, we brought it in a little more personal. And Paul in, in Philippians talks about that we need to, said, don't grumble or complain in anything. And we talked about that that was a strange way of couching how we would be light to the world. Because Paul goes on to say when we do that, when we, in everything, we don't grumble, we don't complain or dispute, we don't murmur, that that is somehow, we, when we do that, we become lights to the world or lights in the midst of the world. And that seems a strange starting point, but if we think about what that actually takes to not murmur and grumble. By the way, how many of you spent time thinking about that this week? I'm still wrestling with that. I know that was my project two weeks ago as I began to think about this. Of you know, How often do I murmur and grumble? There's times I'm not even aware of. And this week, again, just thinking through that process of what does my day-to-day life look like? What kind of things annoy me? What kind of things do I... Even, even without even saying anything to anybody, do I just murmur and grumble in my mind? But when Paul says, don't do that, see, what that requires is, is some actions on our part that doesn't ultimately just affect our grumbling. It affects all of us. And so we can become lights to the world. For example, if I'm going to stop grumbling, stop murmuring, stop getting upset about things, number one, it takes humility to admit that even in that little thing, I don't match up to the character and the holiness of God. Who in the midst of literally the worst day that anybody could have, the last day of his life. But he didn't, he didn't revile in return. He didn't sit in the high priest's place when they were abusing him and reviling him and, and beating him going, man, I wish this wasn't happening. But he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. When the disciples abandoned him, he didn't, that was good for nothing, lousy. He entrusted himself to the Father. He looked to that day when all would be made right. So it takes humility to admit that my grumbling doesn't match up with the Savior and it really is an offense to God. And when we begin in that posture, when we begin even with those little things like murmuring in my head, when I think I've got to be humble, that begins to affect, infect, if you will, pervade all of who we are. And when we become humble in our being, then that is a light to the world. They see something different. Most of the world is full of pride. And so that necessarily, choosing to not grumble about things, forces us into an attitude, an aspect, a a way of living life of humility. And that's God-honoring. Second, it requires spending time with God and asking Him, God, would you show me where I grumble? A lot of my life, I just go through life, I don't even think about it. I don't even think that that's sinful, that that's an offense to God. How would you show me? And then we talked about, and would you show me why I do that? And again, 
grumbling in and of itself is not the issue. It's what's going on in my heart. And when I spend time with God asking Him to reveal to me where and why, that's going to affect other things besides just me murmuring and complaining about life. It's going to set up this dependence with God of, I'm going to seek Him about not just this, but other things. I'm going to see that He's faithful, that His Spirit will remind me, hey, did you notice that you just grumbled? Oh, no, I didn't even... Wow. And it begins to build this relationship with our Heavenly Father of seeking His Spirit to prompt us when we sin and then asking God, what's the root of that? And ultimately the root of it is, I want to build my kingdom as opposed to God's kingdom. When I murmur and grumble about things, whether it's the line at the grocery store or the traffic or the weather, what I'm saying is I have certain expectations that I think life should be like and somebody else or something else is messing with that. And is God sovereign or not? Is that long line, is the traffic, is the weather an opportunity for me to display kindness and goodness to somebody else? Or is my kingdom more important? And by golly, it shouldn't be this way. And so when we seek God and ask Him, show me why, that begins to develop in us, not just about grumbling, but in our whole aspect, our whole way of life, of God is sovereign and I'm not, and it's not about my kingdom, it's about His kingdom. God, how can I respond to that person, to that situation, in love and kindness and patience and grace? And when we do that, we become lights to the world. The third thing it requires us to do, because it's impossible, even with those two things, I figure that out, I can't change. It requires me to look to Christ as the example. Over and over again in Scripture, when Peter and Paul and John and everybody else say, here's how you should live, there's always a pause somewhere where they hold up the crucified Christ. Here's your example. If you're struggling on how possibly you could do this, here's the example and here's what keeps you from being in despair when you fail because we're going to. For two weeks I've been thinking about this and I haven't done it perfectly yet. But I have been thinking about Christ and, and His reaction to life and His forgiveness. And so I haven't been caught up in despair. Ah, that was the third time this hour that I complained about something in my mind. I thank you for going to the cross. Help me to focus on you and see you for who you are. And so I think Paul could have used a thousand different things, but he used something that forces us to go through that process that will ultimately change us to being more Christ-like. Don't grumble. Don't dispute. Don't argue. And these are the necessary things that have to happen. And when we get in the habit of doing those things, we necessarily change in lots of ways, and we become lights in the midst of the world. So we talked about big picture us, unity. We talked about um, us individually and what that looks like in our hearts. And this morning now we're going to broaden back out because while those are the foundations, we have to be unified, our hearts have to be changed or the world doesn't really care. 
But there is a hurting world out there. If we begin in Isaiah 40 and read all the way to the end of Isaiah, what we see over and over again is this motif of the idea of God calling a servant. Sometimes that servant is the nation Israel. In a couple of chapters, that servant is a guy named Cyrus who is going to come and defeat the Babylonians and send the Israelites back into the Promised Land, called by name several hundred years before it happened. Right? But a lot of times that servant is this messianic figure that Jesus takes on and quotes Isaiah about himself, that he's the servant. We see in Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I have called you, talking about this servant, which we know is Jesus, in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And then here's what he's supposed to do, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from prison. There's this, this idea that this, this servant is going to do the miraculous. The blind will see, whether that's physical sight or this spiritual sight. We sing that song, Amazing Grace. I was once blind, but now I see. He wasn't talking about physical sight. He was talking about spiritual sight. You flip over to Isaiah 61, and it's a passage that Jesus quotes about himself in Luke chapter 4. Same idea. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And we see that this servant is not just about a certain inward aspect not just about what we're like together, but there is a necessary component of the local church, of God's people. We'll talk about the local church in a minute. But of God's people, particularly His servant, that He reaches out to other people. There's a, a hurting world. There's a blind world and an imprisoned world and a dark world that needs the light. And we've said before that that if that's what Jesus is and what He's supposed to do, and as we said several weeks back, we're the body of Christ, that necessarily means that these are our marching orders as well. That is a requirement of the local church to proclaim liberty to the captives, to bring people out of darkness, to give sight to the blind. That is a job of the local church. We can't get around that. We can't escape that. And in Isaiah 58, what he does is he, he talks to the nation of Israel, his people, specifically about one of the ways that they can do that. So I want to walk through verse by verse Isaiah 58 and help us to see what it is that we need to be doing as a people and as individuals so that we too can be a light to the nations. So, I'm going to kind of read a, a verse at a time and stop and talk about it. Isaiah 58, chapter 1. Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. 
Uh, he begins by wanting the nation to know that the awareness of your sins is important. We need to proclaim this. We don't need to hide this. This is important stuff. You've sinned, and that needs to be called out because that needs to change. So we think about our own lives. Are we allowing God's Word to call out to us our sin? Are we spending time in this book knowing what God looks like, what He wants from us, what He requires from us? Are we aware of our sin? That's sort of the starting point. We're human. God has a standard and He wants us to reach that standard. Verse 2. Yet they seek me day by day in delight to know my ways. That sounds good, doesn't it? As a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God, they ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. I like that verse. It sounds like they're doing everything right. They're seeking God. They're asking for justice. They delight to know His ways. That's a positive start. Those are some good verses for us to meditate on. Am I seeking God day by day? Are you seeking God day by day? Do you delight to know His ways? Is this a joy to you to spend time learning about the character of the Creator of the universe? Have we not forsaken His ordinances? Has God show me where I've left something off, where I'm missing something. Are we asking Him for just decisions? Or are we taking things into our own hands? Do you delight in His presence? And that's good, but there's a problem. Verse 3. First half of verse 3. They ask a question, the people of Israel. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you don't notice? So there's this proclamation that we're seeking you, we're doing these things, but we're fasting and we're humbling ourselves and it appears, God, that you're ignoring us. From our perspective, God, we're doing the right things, but you're distant, you're silent, you don't hear. And then the second half of verse 3 and verse 4, we get the reason why. We, we begin to understand what's really going on. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. In other words, this, this outward ceremony is for my own benefit. I'm doing the rules and the regulations. I'm doing the right things for the wrong reasons. I'm fasting, but I'm making my workers work harder. I'm fasting, but it's, it's what can I get out of it? I'm hoping to get something out of this. See, God is not someone that we can fast to manipulate. It's not why we do that. It's to humble ourselves and recognize that He's God and, and we're not, and we're seeking Him in His ways, not, hey, God, look, I'm, I'm following all the rules and regulations. I'm doing it correctly. Now will you bless me? Or will you give me this? Or will you do this for me? And don't worry about, don't look at those people behind me that are my workers that I'm treating poorly, right? 
And so the problem was there was this outward conformity without an inward heart change. And so then God talks about what fasting is to get to the heart of the issue. Verse 5. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? In other words, okay, what am I after? Is it a day for you to humble yourself? Is that what we're after? Is it bowing one's head like a reed? Is it, is it the posture that I'm after? Is it spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Is it the, the physical form that you take when you fast and humble yourself? Is that what I'm after? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? So he's, he's pointing out the correct form. Humility often in that culture took the form of sackcloth, ashes, bowing a head, humility, this, this outward looking a certain way. He said, is that what we're really after? Is that, is it, if anybody just does that, is that good? Can we call that good? Here's the correct definition, verses 6 and 7. Is this not the fast that I choose, God talking, to loosen the bonds of wickedness? Are you fasting for you or are you fasting so that you have an opportunity to loosen somebody's bonds? To undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. That's what God's after because that's what His servant, remember Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61, Jesus repeating that, that's the goal. Is it not, verse 7, to divide your bread with the hungry? When you go without, what are you doing with what you're going without? In that culture, in that day, stuff wouldn't last very long. Right? There's no refrigeration. I mean, I, could, I probably could smoke some meat and preserve stuff, but, you know, Israel climate, most of the year pretty warm, you bake bread, it's not going to last very long on the counter. Right? So what do you do when you fast with that food? Are you giving it to someone who has a need or are you making them fast too? Well, I'm fasting. They should too. Are you sharing? Are you generous? And to bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. We might loosely translate that you're not afraid of anybody else, that, that mankind doesn't offend you or cause you to shrink back. Are you afraid of other flesh that's different than you? Again, a different socioeconomic background, someone who's dirty, someone who's of a different ethnicity, someone who just makes you feel sort of uncomfortable. Are you afraid of that person? Do you hide yourself from your own flesh and blood, from humanity? That's what it means to be God's people. Is that we, we look around the world. Yes, we, we are unified amongst our diversity. We care about our own heart and how we behave around other people. But it also means that we are looking out 
into the world and going, how can I care for those who are less fortunate than I am? The hungry, the homeless, the dirty, those that are downtrodden, those that need someone to come alongside them because through their own poor life choices, which we've all made, they, they have found themselves so far from God and so far from being able even to function correctly in the society. When we do that, though, here's what happens. Verse 8. Then your light, there's that idea of light that runs again through these 20-so chapters of Isaiah. Then your light will break out like the dawn. So number one, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, light has two purposes. Light reveals mess. It, It brings judgment. Some people won't like it when we extend and be generous to those that are different from us because it it reveals flaws in, in humanity that we don't take care of ourselves. But light also guides and leads the way and helps us to avoid pitfalls and and shows people truth. So when you do this, you will be light. So number one, we'll become light. Second section of verse 8, and your recovery will speedily spring forth. There will be revival in the church among God's people. Number three, your righteousness will go before you. There will be direction and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard and protection. This this wonderful idea that, that our character, our behavior, God's character really through us will go before us. It will make a way. And God is always has our back. Always, In the same way as the Israelites were up against the sea and the army was behind them and God moved from in front of them to behind them and stationed himself between them and the Israelite army until the sea parted and they could walk across. The ultimate example of someone having your back. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. The last thing is we get an audience with God. There's this intimacy that takes place between us and our Heavenly Father. We see Him, we hear Him, we know Him, we have an audience with Him. And then He, in case we missed it, He goes back through with some different wording and says, but remember, here's the condition for all this to happen. If you remove the yoke from your midst... The pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you give yourself to the hungry, you satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. The Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden. What does a watered garden do? And it provides tomatoes and green beans and corn, right? So you can be satisfied and not just satisfied, but those things all taste really good, right? It's not just cornmeal mush that will, that will sustain us, right? And like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And then he repeats some wording that he talks about that servant again from Isaiah 42 and 49. 
that this servant, Jesus, would sort of restore things, restore communities. Streets would be rebuilt. Walls would be restored. And he gives, uses that same imagery for God's people. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. As much as some of you in here would love for Andrews to become economically viable again, that there would be prosperity um, and peace in this, right? And politics wants to do that. The best way to do that is through the local church meeting the needs of the people around us. That's what God is calling His people to do. And as the body of Christ, that's what He's calling us to do. Where we are, where we live. Over the next three weeks, and I would encourage you to be here, we're going to do something different over the next three weeks. We're going to take those three ideas and sit down together, and I'm not going to preach or give a sermon, and we're going to say, where are we not like that? And what do we need to do to get to that point? Those three things we've talked about the last three weeks. Unity, the state of our own hearts, and how we as a a body reach out to the less fortunate than us. Um, We're going to sit around tables over the next three weeks in here. Um, In two weeks from now, we're going to eat first and then talk. Um, And we're going to talk about those things. So your homework assignment, while I want you to be thinking about this in the back of your mind, we're going to back up to two weeks. Your homework assignment this week, I want you to think about what does unity look like in the local church? What am I doing personally to foster unity in this local body? And what do I need to do to foster unity in this local body? And we'll we'll talk about that and we'll flesh those things out and we'll discuss that. And then in two weeks, we're going to talk about the issue of our heart. We're going to go back and talk about grumbling other things, but the idea of humility and trust and what we are doing. I want to get very personal. I want us as a local body to thrive and be an impactful witness where we are, whether that's in this community or Hanging Dog or Ranger or Brasstown because we're scattered all over the map and places in between. We're going to think very specifically, what is the local church doing, us, in terms of our unity, in terms of our own heart? And then the last week, that third week, which is the first week in June, begin the process of brainstorming what are the needs in this community, in the community where you live. And some of us are already doing that a little bit on Fourth Friday at the Grays. But very specifically, this body as a congregation, our time, our resources, our money, what does it look like and how do we impact so that people would look at, and not for the sake of us being this way, but that we, we really would be the repairer of the breach where we are. That we would be the local church, the restorer of streets to dwell in. 
and that God's kingdom would be known and that he would receive the glory. So this week, I want you to think about the idea of unity. What, is it, what does it take? What does it look like? What am I doing? What do I need to be doing to foster that unity in the local church so that we exemplify to the non-believing world what Trinity really is? What the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit really are to us. Are they important? Do they matter? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love for us. God, I thank you for giving us one another, these relationships in this room. I praise you for um, each unique personality and situation and background and story and testimony as you have worked wonders in the lives in this room. God, I pray in the coming weeks that you would continue to change us and conform us into the image of your Son that you might be glorified in all that we say and do. And we ask these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen.